Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. I'm Pastor Trent Sari. Glad you could join us today. We are recording live in WKLC Studios here in Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin. We began a discussion about the person and work of Jesus Christ last time in our last episode. We talked about those promises that God had made in the Old Testament and how they would be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to explore that topic a little bit more as we consider who Jesus is and what he came to do. The topic for our lesson today is what does the Bible say about our Savior in his state of humiliation? Now, that term, humiliate, uh, has a very strong connotation in our own minds. So I'm going to just begin by asking Lauren, Lauren, what do you think most people think of when you you hear that term, humiliate or humiliation? Well, I I guess a couple words that come to mind would be embarrass, maybe denigrate someone. Maybe a better word would be insult. Yeah, shame. Shame, yeah. Those are all closely related, I think. So we tend to see that term as a negative term. Uh, to humiliate is to be brought low. I mean, to, to have one's pride pulled out from underneath them, so to speak. That's generally the way we think about it. When we're speaking about Jesus in his state of humiliation, remember, Jesus as a person is true God and true man. That's unique. And so Uh, This is kind of a theological definition that we use, but it allows us to understand certain statements that we come across in the scriptures a little bit easier. So we're going to define what we mean by Jesus' state of humiliation. By that term, we are talking about the time during which Jesus does not always and fully make use of his divine attributes as true God. So remember, in the person of Jesus Christ, you have somebody who is 100% true man and 100% true God, and yet those, the attributes and characteristics of those two natures come out in different ways as we read the gospel accounts. So uh, when we speak about his state of humiliation, in the Apostles' Creed, we're talking about that time between his conception and birth and his burial in the grave. So, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, all of the things that go within those events, uh, between those events, will also be included during this state of humiliation. Now, to be clear, during Jesus' earthly life, he certainly does make use of his divine attributes. For instance, we see him walking on water. We see him raising the dead. We see him able to, to see what's in somebody's heart or mind. Obviously, only things that God can do. And yet, on the other hand, we come across statements in the Gospels where we read things that wouldn't be referring to God. For instance, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature before God and men. Well, as true God, he knows all things. He wouldn't need to grow in wisdom. Uh, we see that Jesus was tired. He needed to sleep. Well, God never sleeps or slumbers. We see that Jesus uh, needed rest. He needed uh, food. Obviously, God doesn't need food, all of those things. So when we come across statements like that, we understand them according to Jesus' human nature and uh, that he willingly lays aside his divine attributes for a time in order to accomplish our redemption. So what is Christ's state of humiliation? 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. St. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So there's, there's a key uh, point there. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So from the time of Christ's conception to his burial, Jesus was in this state of humiliation. He took on the form of a lowly servant, and he did not always or fully make use of his divine powers as true God. And in this way, he was able to suffer and to die upon the cross for our salvation. And we, we alluded to this a little bit last time when we said, obviously, God doesn't die, and yet in the person of Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man, we can say God died. And of course, uh, according to his humanity, certainly Jesus was able to die. So we're going to kind of look at the various aspects of Christ's life according to the Gospels. We're going to get a little bit of Bible history again today. And we're going to begin with the conception and birth of Christ. Obviously, we think about this especially at Christmas time. We're going to talk about Christ's conception and birth somewhere around the time 4 BC. And you say, well, I thought, I thought it was zero. I mean, shouldn't it be the year zero? Well, at one point, historians had misfigured a few things. And so uh, the more modern rendering is that Christ actually probably was born roughly 4 BC. So God's time to send the Messiah had come. And we see that the angel Gabriel appears to a priest named Zechariah. And he tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth are to become the parents of a son. This son, obviously, you know as John the Baptist, will prepare the way for the Messiah. He's the forerunner. He's the, he's the finger pointing to Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He's the voice crying out in the wilderness. Six months later, the same messenger now is sent to Mary, a virgin, living in Nazareth and engaged to Joseph. Now, it seems as though Joseph is quite a bit older than Mary. Mary may have been uh, quite young, perhaps in her teens even. Uh, we don't know for certain. But it's possible that Joseph had been uh, married before. Maybe he's widowed. I don't know. We don't know. But the, the point is, is he may have had children from a previous marriage. Maybe not. Uh, but Mary certainly has not. She is a virgin, as the scriptures clearly teach and as Isaiah had foretold over 700 years earlier. So the angel says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And of course, Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of of God. Notice that Jesus does not have an earthly father. He is born of a woman, as you and I have been, and yet he is conceived by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, around this time, the Roman Emperor Augustus issues a, issues a decree 
that all the people of his empire are to be counted and taxed. Of course, this is all part of God's divine providence, right? And this makes it necessary for Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem, uh, which means the house of bread. The house of bread. And that's where the bread of life will be born, fittingly enough. The city of their ancestor, David. Jesus is born while they are in Bethlehem. An angel appears to shepherds near Bethlehem, bringing them the wonderful news. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, following this message, many angels appear and sing praises to God. What an what a amazing event that must have been for those shepherds to, to witness. And so the shepherds hurry to worship the child and then spread the news of the newborn Savior. So here we see the, the beginning part of Jesus' state of humiliation by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, who is eternal, without beginning, without end. The second person of the Trinity now takes on human flesh and blood in time. So according to his divine nature, Jesus is eternal, without beginning, without end. According to his human nature, he is born of the virgin as true man in Bethlehem. Now, what does the Bible teach about the earthly life of Christ? And we're going to talk about that period between 4 BC and, say, roughly 30 AD. Now, eight days after his birth, uh, Jesus is circumcised, as all Jewish boys were, and given the name Jesus. When he is six weeks old, his parents take him to the temple and present him to the Lord. A little later, wise men from the east come to Jerusalem looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Uh, of course, they are led there by a miraculous star. They seem to be scholars who understand these types of things. Uh, they are advised to go to Bethlehem where, according to the prophet Micah, the promised Savior was to be born. So, guided by that star which had appeared to them in the east, lo and behold, they find Jesus with his family. They worship him. So, they are believers, and they present him with gifts. Interesting gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, gold is the kind of gift that you would give to a king, and certainly Jesus is royalty. Frankincense, interestingly enough, incense is what was offered to God. If we think about the Old Testament worship, uh, Psalm 141, let my prayers rise before you as incense, a gift that was to be offered to God. Here they offer it to God in the flesh. And the final gift, myrrh. Myrrh is something that we normally associate with embalming or preparing a, a body that is deceased. So, uh, perhaps we get a little bit of an indicator of what kind of king he's going to be, that he is going to be the king who dies, the Savior who dies, the Messiah who dies for the sins of all mankind, just as God had promised way back in Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but it would come at a cost, so the serpent would bruise his heel. Now, after Herod's death, those wise men make their or after Herod's death, rather, Jesus makes his home in Nazareth. 
we we don't have a lot of information about Jesus' youth, his early life. We do have one account when Jesus is 12 years old. He's taken to Jerusalem to attend the Passover. And of course, here he astonishes the teachers with his wisdom. And he returns with his parents to Nazareth and is obedient to them. Well, there's <laughs> there is that one incident in there where uh, they're all heading home. The family's heading home, and somewhere along the way, there's a startling revelation to Mary and Joseph. Hey, wait a second! Did you bring the kid? Where's Oops. Where's Jesus? <laughs> and I I always chuckle. I mean, obviously they're they're traveling with a large family group, and I could see where this would happen. But I always think. What kind of parents don't know where their child is? You know, you talk about free-range parents, man. Uh, well, he's hanging out with the cousins, <laughs> you know, whatever. How, how do you travel that distance and, oops, we forgot the kid. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's not really humorous, but it is kind of interesting. But of course, they go and they find Jesus in the temple. He says, didn't you know I'd be, I'd be in my father's house and so on and so forth. Now, the, the Bible summarizes the child of, childhood of Jesus saying, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And here's again one of these statements that would be very difficult to understand unless we understand what we're talking about today. This Jesus in his state of humiliation, the time during which he does not always and fully make use of his divine attributes. Again, as true God, certainly Jesus doesn't grow in wisdom. He knows all things. But Remember, he lays aside his divine attributes for a time. He does not always make full use of them. And so we can find statements like this, that Jesus, the God-man, increases in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So, you know, this, this whole topic that we're talking about today it is practical in the sense that it allows us to uh, understand certain statements that are made when we read the Gospels. At the age of 30, Jesus goes into the wilderness where John is preaching and baptizing. And Jesus is baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness, as he tells him. You know, of course, John says, hey, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. And Jesus says, you know, nevertheless, it's fitting now to fulfill all righteousness. But anyways, at Jesus' baptism, we have this theophany, this, this sort of revelation of God as we hear this voice from heaven saying, uh, you know, this is my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Uh, We see the son, the second person of the Trinity, standing in the Jordan River, and we see the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descending in the form of a dove. So there we see the Trinity, the triune God revealed at Jesus' baptism. And this sort of begins the, the formal inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. Of course, John the Baptist points Jesus out to the crowds, exclaiming, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, What a glorious gospel statement. And certainly loaded with Old Testament imagery. We think about uh, the lambs and the the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus would be the sin bearer who would uh, take upon himself the sins of the world and take them away to his death on the cross. Now, immediately after Jesus' baptism, he is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, So, where you and I have failed in resisting temptation, 
Jesus perfectly resists those temptations of the devil. Where Adam uh, failed in the face of temptation by Satan, Jesus, the second Adam, prevails. And as I said, this begins three years of public ministry. And during that public ministry, he, he chooses 12 disciples or apostles. Sometimes those terms are confusing to people. Disciple just means a learner or follower. Apostle means sent ones. So there are 12 apostles, and all of the apostles are disciples. But not all disciples are apostles. Jesus had many disciples. Uh, you could say we are disciples of Christ. But he travels then and he preaches about the kingdom of God. He performs many miracles, such as the turning of water into wine, healing incurable diseases, raising the dead even, and thus he proves himself to be the Messiah and the Son of God. Now, I just want to say something about the, the miracles. Obviously, all of these miracles demonstrate Jesus' divinity. So when we talk about his state of humiliation, it's not as though he never uses his divine attributes or his divine powers, so to speak. But he doesn't always or fully make use of them. And the other thing about these miracles, uh, as I always say, these are not just random events. Remember, all of these afflictions that people are coming to Jesus with are, in, in a way, directly related to man's fall into sin. It's because of the fall into sin that we have disease and illness and death in the world. And so Jesus, by uh, being able to heal people from these things, shows that he is the one who is the Savior from sin. And in many ways, the physical healings are pictures of what Jesus does for us spiritually. You know, we come into this world deaf, uh, blind to the things of God, dead in our sins and trespasses, the scriptures teach, and it's through Christ that we have life, who opens our ears that we might hear God's gracious call, who opens our eyes so that we might see Christ as our Savior through faith, and so on. He opens our mouth that we might show forth his praises. Now, Jesus has many people who like to hear him preach and teach, and as he goes around working these miracles, he attracts great crowds. And some of the Jewish people accept him. But as you read the Gospels, you'll see that a great deal, uh, even more, reject him. Now, most of the Jewish leaders, like the scribes and the Pharisees, well, they in fact hate him. They hate him for his doctrine, which demands repentance and convicts them as sinners and faith. And it talks about God's grace and mercy and how we are saved through the Savior and not by our own works, which of course is what the Pharisees and teachers of the law were leading people to believe. So as a result, they plot to kill him. They want him out of the picture. So Jesus, by word and deed, showed himself to be the Son of God, the promised Messiah. He endured poverty, contempt, and persecution. Now, obviously, as true God, he could have solved all of these issues really, really quickly and just done away with all of his enemies, right? But he doesn't. He, he endures all of these things willingly in our place and for our sake. Now, uh, we're going to talk specifically about his passion. You know, what does the scriptures teach in regard to Jesus' suffering, death, and his burial? So, roughly, we're going through 
those steps of his state of humiliation as I articulated them from the Apostles' Creed, sometimes called the Baptismal Creed. We're going to look specifically at that final week of Jesus' life. We know that Jesus entered Jerusalem during the week of Passover on Palm Sunday. And just a little bit of background there. On the 10th of the month of Nisan, the the Jews followed a lunar calendar, not like our modern calendar, but roughly close. And uh, this is why Easter always falls on a different date every year, um, because it depends upon the lunar cycle. But the Jews of the Old Testament, the people of Israel, were instructed on how they were to keep the Passover. And remember that whole event surrounded God delivering his people from their time of bondage in Egypt. They were to select a male lamb, a year old, without spot or blemish. They were to slaughter him at twilight on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. And uh, they were to take some of that blood and spread it on the lintel and the two doorposts of their houses so that when the angel of death came through the land, they would be spared. And of course, all of these things point us forward to the person and work of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. It's no coincidence that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This is the very day when the Jewish people would be selecting their year-old lambs without spot or blemish. And it's as though God brings in his choice, the spotless Lamb of God, and he brings them into the, the city there. And that's Jesus' triumphal entry. He comes into the cheers of the crowds. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds shout. Although most of them are probably thinking in terms of an earthly Messiah. They don't understand that he is really riding in to die. So Thursday of Holy Week, sometimes called Maundy Thursday, a strange term, comes from the Latin mandatum, has to do with a command. And there are two commands uh, that we especially associate with Maundy Thursday and from which it gets its name. There was Jesus washing his disciples' feet, and he says, as I've done for you, so you should do for one another. Uh, But more importantly, we have the do this in remembrance of me as we hear Jesus institute the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So that would be as he was eating the Passover with his disciples. Uh, and he, during this meal, he also points out that one of them, Judas, is going to betray him. And then uh, he goes on to institute the Lord's Supper. Now, after this, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples to pray. And of course, uh, he takes along his inner three, Peter, James, and John. And he tells them to keep watch, and of course, they keep falling asleep. But it's here because Judas knows this place that he leads a band of soldiers there to arrest Jesus. And of course, I'm giving you very much a condensed summary of all of these events. Uh, If you would like to have all the details, certainly look to the Gospels. But Jesus is led to Annas, who is a retired high priest, for a preliminary hearing. And all of these hearings are done under the cover of darkness. If someone is going to be charged as Jesus was, there was a proper way to do this. It was to be uh, over the course of a couple trials in daylight and the full Sanhedrin there. This was not done in this case. He's arraigned before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court presided over by the high priest Caiaphas. And here Jesus 
having called himself the Son of God, is found guilty of blasphemy. He's condemned to death and shamefully mistreated, flogged, beaten, spit upon, punched in the face, and so on. Now, the Jews were in a little bit of a predicament because they were living under Roman rule. They really needed the blessing of the Roman governors in order to uh, have the death penalty carried out. And so that's why we see this sort of strange interaction between the Jewish leaders and the Roman governing officials at that time. Now, uh, there's also this, this uh, sad event that takes place where we see Jesus or Peter, rather, deny Jesus three times. Remember, Peter is the one who's always first to speak and often first to put his foot in his mouth. He's the one who said, you know, he, he made the good confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then when Jesus told his disciples that he would have to go to Jerusalem and be betrayed by the Jewish leaders, that he would be beaten, crucified, die, and rise again, Peter said, no, this shall never happen to you. And of course, he was rebuked by Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan. Jesus would reiterate that, that he needed to go to Jerusalem to die. He says, Lord, this will never happen to you. And, you know, I'll, I'll go with you too if I have to, to my death. And Jesus says, no, you know, I tell you the truth. Uh, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And of, of course, Peter says, no, that, that's not going to happen. I'll never do that. And of course, the rest of the disciples say the same thing. Uh, lo and behold, Peter, uh, as he's warming himself by a fire, watching the events of Jesus' false trial, uh, he's confronted by onlookers who recognize him, and he denies that he knows Jesus, even calling down curses upon himself, taking oaths, swearing oaths, I don't know this man, I don't know what you're talking about. And, of course, the rooster crows. There's a, there's a really eerie uh, point in there where Jesus turns and looks at Peter. You can only imagine what that look must have been like. But Peter, remembering Jesus' words, goes out and weeps bitterly, uh, recognizing his own weakness, uh, that he has fallen to the depths that he said he never would. Now, obviously, having no right to inflict the death penalty, the Jews, in the early hours of Good Friday, uh, there, there, there's a great deal of haste in these events because of this particular Friday running up against the Sabbath. And so they wanted to make sure that everything was taken care of before the Sabbath started at sundown on Friday evening. So they lead Jesus to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. A Pilate is intrigued by Jesus. He's kind of amused by Jesus. He's kind of scared of Jesus. He, he really wants to let him go in some ways, but at the end of the day, he gives in to the mob. So Judas sees all of this, these events, and he also feels guilty for his actions, like Peter. He's remorseful, however, he's not repentant. That is, he doesn't turn to God for forgiveness. He just feels bad that he's done a bad thing. And he goes out in despair and hangs himself. So the very opposite of faith. Two examples of betrayal, uh, one that led to condemnation and death, one in repentance turns to God for forgiveness and is later reinstated by Jesus. We're talking about Peter. Now the Jews accuse Jesus of being a rebel king. So they know that this is going to be the charge that's really going to rile the Romans up and, and gain traction with them. 
However, when Pilate learns that Christ's kingdom is spiritual, he tries to wash his hands and declare him innocent. And in fact, he sends him to Herod, who mocks Jesus, uh, puts a white robe on him, and returns him to Pilate. And again, Pilate pronounces him innocent. He seeks in various ways to release him, but the Jews insist that he be crucified. And in the meantime, he even offers to release a prisoner, which was kind of a custom during the Passover, uh, a man named Barabbas. Uh, interestingly enough, his, he was a murderer in the insurrection, uh, may have been a zealot. His name means son of the father. So they, the Jewish leaders ask for a murderer to be released, uh, the son of a father, literally Barabbas. And instead, they want to see Jesus, the son of the father, condemned to death, even though he was innocent. Of course, fearing a riot, a riot Pilate once more declares Jesus innocent, but sentences him to be crucified. Now, at 9 a.m. in the morning, having carried his own cross, actually, uh, he also has a little bit of help from a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus is crucified on a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Very interesting uh, detail, which reminds us of God's promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's skull. Uh, there's a tradition, not that it has a lot of weight, but there's a tradition that this was the place where Adam's tomb was. And of course, we don't know that, but it would be fitting, right? I mean, it would be fitting something that God would do on this hill called Golgotha, the seed of the woman does indeed crush the serpent's head. He wins the victory over sin, death, and the devil. As he's crucified between two thieves on a hill called Calvary or Golgotha, he suffers not only pain in his body, which is obviously grueling enough, but the agony of hell itself, being forsaken by God. We hear him cry out, the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this other interesting detail, from noon to 3 p.m., there is darkness that covers the earth. This is an unnatural phenomena. And in the Bible, darkness usually implies judgment. It implies, uh, you know, the blindness of man to the things of God, unbelief. Uh, but here, judgment has come upon the earth it's come upon the person of God's Son, the person of Jesus Christ. Something huge is taking place. In fact, there's earthquakes. Tombs are opened at the death of Christ. The temple of the curtain is torn in two. Sinners now have access to the presence of God. Uh, these are, you know, cataclysmic, ap uh, apocalyptic-type events that are happening as Jesus is hanging there, as he's dying. Jesus, having declared the work of salvation finished, uh, saying to Telestai, it is finished, it is accomplished, there's nothing more that needs to be added to it, it's all done, with a loud voice, commends his soul into the hands of his heavenly Father and dies. He dies. He lays down his life. It's not taken from him. When he decides to die, he dies. In fact, they're surprised that he died so quickly. Sometimes it would take two or three days for somebody on a cross to finally die. But as I said, immediately there's a great earthquake, graves are opened, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Fascinating, marvelous events, uh, something huge, uh, earth-changing has happened. 
Of course, uh, friends of Jesus lovingly uh, ask for his body. They lay his body in a nearby tomb, and they roll a large stone before the entrance. And here, his body rests uh, until the third day, but it does not decay. All of this in fulfillment of the scriptures, uh, Jesus spends his Sabbath rest in the tomb uh, so that he becomes the Sabbath rest for God's people saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now his enemies remember that he had said he would rise again, and so they take great pains to make sure that that tomb is secure so nobody can come and steal the body, and they even post armed guards to watch it. So this brings us to sort of the final stage of Jesus' state of humiliation as we defined it earlier, the time during which he does not always and fully make use of his divine attributes as true God. And here we see that Christ suffered extreme agony of body and soul. He dies as both man and God. And he was buried in a tomb. So, we might ask ourselves, well, what did Christ accomplish by all of that he did between his conception and birth and earthly ministry and suffering and death and burial? And so here we look to the scriptures as they, def- they give us the significance of these events. St. Paul, for instance, writes in Romans chapter 5, by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, this is obviously a statement made in contrast to the one man's disobedience, meaning Adam. All were made sinners and therefore under condemnation. But by Christ's obedience, Christ the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. There's righteousness and forgiveness for all in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not just something uh, that the New Testament speaks of. We can go all the way back to Isaiah 53, And I always encourage people to look at that entire chapter because really, you want a commentary on the crucifixion? Uh, Go read Isaiah 53. What's remarkable is that this was written over 700 years before the events even took place. But Isaiah wrote, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So we talk about the vicarious atonement, the great exchange. Uh, Jesus gets what we deserve, and in return, he gives us his righteousness. Totally undeserved, unmerited. Uh, This is uh, purely by God's grace, his undeserved love and mercy. St. Paul would describe this in 2 Corinthians 5, saying, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. On the cross, Christ literally embodies sin. He takes it all upon himself in his flesh and blood, so that in him, that is through faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He he gives us his perfect righteousness, his perfect fulfillment of the law. He clothes us with it, his righteousness, his holiness, his perfectness. As St. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, Christ has redeemed us to, to, to buy back, to purchase from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. So you could say on the cross, 
Jesus becomes the greatest sinner that the world has ever seen, not because he's actually committed sin, but he takes all of the guilt of all sinners of all time, of all places upon himself. He takes the curse of the law, which says, uh, cursed is everyone who does not continue to, to walk in all of the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. And he takes that upon himself and pays for it with his very life. Second Timothy chapter 1 it says, Our Savior Jesus Christ has abolished death. He's trampled down death by death, that he might bestow life to those in the tomb. That's, a, that's a, from an early church prayer on Easter. And uh, St. Paul says, as a result, it brought life and immortality to light. How? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. He's brought life and immortality. So there, there's a lot more than Jesus just died to take away my sins. He's died to give me life and immortality. I think that's a that's a point that we need to emphasize too. Uh, otherwise, we reduce Jesus to simply some guy who punches your card so that you can stand in line in this life and wait till you get to heaven. And you know, in the meantime, you're just kind of you know twiddling your thumbs or something. No, in the meantime, you have life. You have the life of God Himself who gives His life to you. It's eternal life. It never ends, and He gives this and bestows it through the gospel. As I mentioned earlier, all of this is uh, in fulfillment of that promise that, that God had made to Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her, her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And certainly that happened as Christ gave up his life on the cross. It seemed as though it was a defeat. And yet, uh, St. Paul would say, in that death, death itself has been defeated. You know, where, O grave, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as St. John would say in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So he's bound the strong man, he's plundered his house, he's delivered us safely into the kingdom of God. So Christ, as our substitute, fulfilled the law perfectly for us so that we might be declared righteous, justified in his name. So he's redeemed us from the guilt, the punishment, and the slavery of sin. He overcame death for us, and now we need not fear temporal death, since eternal death has no power over us. He conquered the devil for us, and now he can no longer successfully accuse us. So, all of these things Christ has done for all people. He is truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the payment for all sins of all people of all times, of all places, absolutely accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, We talk about the universal aspect of that atonement, the objective aspect of it in the sense that it's true, it's outside of us, it's not, we don't make that true, it's true in him. Now, that begs the question then, not everybody benefits from that, and why is that? So how, how do we receive the benefit of what Jesus did for us? Luke chapter 19, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, Jesus says, I chose you, you did not choose me. So he's the one who seeks after us. Uh, you know, I've often heard street corner preachers say something like, Hey, have you found Jesus? And of course, uh, you know, 
the smart aleck answer is, well, I didn't know he was lost. <laughs> but there's something biblically to that, too. I mean, uh, we didn't seek out God. He's the one who sought us. We were the lost sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes after the straying sheep, and he carries it back home safely. So he came to seek and to save the lost. That would include you and me. First John 2, verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You don't need to wonder, did Jesus pay for my sins? Yep, the Bible uh, certainly talks about that objective aspect of it. He paid for the sins of the whole world, which means everybody that you meet on the street, you can assure them, Jesus died for you. There are some Christians who teach what we call a limited atonement. They say Jesus only died for the elect, those who would come to believe. Which is always strange to me because I think, how do you do evangelism? Do you go out and you say, well, hey, sir, did you know that Jesus might have died for you? Hey, did you know that Jesus might love you? I mean, it's a ridiculous notion. Uh, the Bible over and over says God was in Christ reconciling the whole world unto himself. And he paid for the sins of the whole world. That's a comfort. That's reassurance. We don't need to wonder. Did God do this for me? As I said, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ God was reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And of course, we think about that great, great gospel in a nutshell passage uh, we see posted on signs at football games and baseball games and whatever else, John 3.16. It's succinct. It's very powerful, though. God so loved the world. And remember, there, that world is a world full of sinners, a world full of people who have turned their backs on God, who have rejected him, who have run away from him, who have fought against him to the nail, and ultimately even killed him in the flesh. That's the world that God so loved, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So from this, we learn that Christ paid for the sins of the whole world, that is, all human beings, without a single exception, and that we receive the benefit of this redemption when the Holy Spirit creates faith in our hearts so that we believe in Jesus as our personal Savior and uh, we trust in him for salvation. We receive from him in the gospel the forgiveness of our sins. All of those treasures of salvation that Jesus won on the cross— Forgiveness, life, and salvation are delivered to us in the gospel, which we'll talk a lot more about in future episodes because this becomes a huge point and a dividing point in much of Christendom as they understand how does the treasures of salvation that Jesus won for us so long ago on the cross, how do those become ours today? And that's where you'll find a variety of different answers, but the scriptures are clear that that forgiveness, life, and salvation comes to us in the gospel, in word, and in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and it is received, it is grasped, it is appropriated only by the hand of faith. Faith is that empty hand that receives the gift that God gives, and yet even this faith we can't take credit for. It's not our personal decision. It's not something that we can conjure up within ourselves. It's not a good quality in us. It's the empty hand. Uh, it, is a, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast as St. Paul would say in his letter to the Ephesians. So that's a little bit about Jesus' state of humiliation, his important work as true God and true man. 
uh, during his earthly life and ministry. We hope that you'll join us next time as we explore Jesus' state of exaltation. So you'll have to stay tuned to, uh, to hear what that all means. We hope that you'll join us next time here on Under the Oaks. This is Pastor Trent Sarr. And I'm Lauren Thompson. We'll see you soon.